You're listening to the Forefront Church Sermon Podcast. Forefront Church is a progressive Christian community more interested in asking good questions than having all the right answers. Thanks for listening. Good morning, staff and volunteers. Good morning, everybody watching. Good morning. I hear you all. Um, hey, hey, let's breathe. Can we breathe for a minute? I need to breathe too for a minute. Today, today we're going to talk about communion. We're in this How We Got Here series. So we're going to talk about how we got communion, why our church uh, has communion every single week. And I'm going to wrap it all in with everything we've experienced this week, all this election stuff. It's going to be amazing. Are you all ready for this? You ready? Okay. Good. Let's do this. I feel nervous today. A little bit nervous. It'll be all right. It'll be all right. Anyway, I want to talk to you about our denomination. We come from a denomination called the Church of Christ. Um, It's a denomination that's not really a denomination because there's no bureaucracy. There's no officers. Um, You just basically uh, have a group of like-minded churches that all think the same thing, right? It's kind of, I don't know, it's like a little group that got together. The kind of funny thing about this little group that all thinks the same thing is once you start to think something different than the rest of the group, you don't get kicked out. They just stop calling you and asking you to hang out. That's basically what ends up happening. So when we became affirming about six years ago, the phone call stopped, not even Netflix and chill. It was just like, see you later, so long, I hope it all works out for you. But the one good thing about this denomination, one thing I carry with me and we carry with us, is the idea that we take weekly communion. We take the Eucharist. We celebrate, we worship in the mystery of the Eucharist. Um, You know, we don't always give it the love it deserves. But to me, it is the most important and the best part of every service. And so I want to talk about why we do it. I want to talk about the way we operate with Eucharist. And I want to talk to you about, more about my story, my denomination, uh, which I grew up in the same denomination this church was planted out of. So I, you all have a communion story, right? A way that you took communion growing up if you grew up in the church. Um, for me, communion was passed around every week. And, and there were two things. You had to be baptized in order to take communion. And it wasn't an infant baptism. Those are fake baptisms, all right? They're not. But that's what we believed, right? Um, We believed that. And then the second thing was, and this was a big thing, if you missed communion on a Sunday, you were in danger of going to hell. Like, I'm not even kidding. It was like a salvation issue in our denomination. And so, like, if you missed church, like, you took communion at home, or I remember there was times we were in the car driving on a Sunday, and, like, we would have to stop in a rest area to have communion, like, so we didn't miss it. Like, it was that big of a deal. And I wanted to take communion really badly because, A, I didn't want to go to hell, and I was a little bit afraid of that. And, B, my friend Tim Nelson, he got baptized, and he started taking communion, and he said it was fun. So I was like, all right, let me do this. So when I was eight years old, I got baptized. And then the next Sunday, I'll never forget, we went to church in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn. This is the 80s. You're in church. Yeah, there you go, Bay Ridge, shout out. And I was in Bay Ridge, and uh, I remember the communion tray got passed to me. And I remember my friend Tim Nelson, he took a really big piece of cracker. It was really big. And so I said, I want to take a really big piece of cracker too. And so I took like a piece I had to hold with two hands. And I remember eating it and being so excited. And, and looking at Tim Nelson, and he was smiling. We were kind of laughing with each other. And, and then my mom did this. And you all, you all have your mom do this, where she takes her fingernail, like sort of sticks it in your arm, not enough to hurt you, 
but enough so that you know maybe you need to stop laughing during communion. You know what I'm talking about? Like, so my mom did one of those, and I stopped laughing. I said, okay, i got to take this seriously. And there's this sense in which communion is holy and exclusive. Right now, where do we get this holiness and exclusivity from? We actually get it from our tradition. We get it from our Hebrew tradition, and I want to talk about that a little bit. Now, if you all were with me last week, then you remember when I talked about altars and priests. Remember this? Talked about culture. If you were here, you all remember? Okay, good. Yeah. And so we have to go back there, right? And so you have all these tribes and all these nations that are doing blood sacrifices. And so in our Hebrew tradition, we said, hey, we should do blood sacrifices as well. Let's, let's kill some animals for God. And so, again, what we had to do is we said, well, what if we get God upset in the way we make sacrifices? So we had to get a priest to do it. And what the priest stressed, and the big thing that was stressed from the get-go, was the idea that there was the holy and sacred place, and then there was the common place. And only the priest could go into the holy and sacred place. And in fact, there was a bunch of steps that needed to be taken. All of these are 120% true, okay? A priest had to go into the sacred place, and I'm not kidding, the priest had to put on like a, like a special undergarment, holy underwear, no joke, for real, had to put that on first. We'd go in, and he would burn incense, the priest. Now, if you didn't burn incense, you were going to die. That's how sacred and holy this place was. They believed if you didn't burn incense, the priest would keel over and die. He would burn incense, and then there were three animals that he'd bring in with him, a bull and two goats. Now, he would kill the bull immediately. Okay, The bull was killed immediately, and that was for the priest's sins. Because when you're in a sacred place... You don't want to, you know, have anything unsacred in there, or sinful in there. So the bull would just be killed for the priest's sins immediately. And then the, the priest would then cast lots for these two goats. Now, one goat would also be killed immediately, and one goat would become the scapegoat, which we'll get to later. You all know the phrase scapegoat? Yeah? Now, you, all right, now we know where it's coming from, okay? And so what would happen is that the goat that wasn't so lucky, that was killed right there, that goat would be killed right then and there. The priest would take something special and literally start to splatter blood all over the holy place. And then the priest would take the blood of the bull and splatter that blood. And then the priest would take seven different times in seven different ways the blood of the bull with his finger. And he'd wipe it, and then he'd wipe it on the holy place in seven different times in seven different ways. Then, just to be sure everything was cool, the priest would then grab the other goat that was still alive by the face. Can you imagine just grabbing a goat by the face? <laughs> he would grab the goat by the face, and then he would start confessing the sins of his tribe on that goat. Johnny did this, Bob did that, she did this, right? Like just confessing all the sins on this goat while this goat just stared at you. And then that priest would take that goat and send that goat out to starve and die in the wilderness. That's what the scapegoat did. The priest would come out, take off his holy garments, uh, and sprinkle, I think sprinkle some more blood. I don't remember about the sprinkling more blood. But anyway, we'll come out and then tell the tribe, tell the nation, hey, your sins are forgiven. Right, Because there was this sacred place that only the priest could go into and that God was in that place. And there's this common place and they, the people are like, ooh, good, thank God, my sins are forgiven for a little bit. And then it becomes that way and stays that way for thousands of years. Thousands of years. But then we start to hear from God. God's like, I don't like blood sacrifices. In fact, through Isaiah, through the prophet Isaiah, he literally says, uh, the prophet Isaiah literally says, hey, I'm speaking for God and God doesn't like your blood sacrifices. I'll read it for you. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing me meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. Wow. 
That's pretty overt, pretty blunt, right? But Isaiah is a prophet, and what do we do with prophets? We don't believe them. They're truth-tellers, and we don't believe truth-tellers. I think about, you know, think about the prophets of today. Most people don't believe them. Greta Thornburg, Colin Kaepernick, they speak truth, and we're like, no! Right? That's what's happening with Isaiah. People are like, no! They're doing that, and so they continue with these blood sacrifices. And so human beings, we have to be hit over the head a couple times, don't we, before we start to get things. So what happens is Jesus shows up. And what did I say last week, for those of you who all remember? I said, when Jesus shows up, if we want to know the character of God, we look at Jesus. And Jesus is also a prophet. And so as a prophet, Jesus is poor, right? He's part of the 99% he lives outside of the walls of Jerusalem. He probably doesn't know where his next meal is coming from. Jesus is a, a documented refugee, right? Jesus is a common person who fights against the empire, Right? This is somebody who is not to be liked. You want to talk about kind of a common person, right? This person is not sacred at all. And so it's hard for people to believe. But then miracles start to happen, right? As miracles start to happen, people start to follow. And what Jesus does is Jesus shows us what this sacrifice should be or, or the way it turns, right? And he shows us through this amazing miracle. Now, y'all who are here, raise your hand if you have heard of the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. Everybody but one. Angela. She didn't raise her hand. She doesn't know about the feeding of the 5,000. This is, this is what it says. It says this. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed the far shore of the Sea of Galilee. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw signs he had performed by healing the sick. And then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. And the Jewish Passover festival was near. And so you have this, this, this idea of food, this idea that there's going to be a feast. And, and, and the disciples say, Jesus, there's a lot of really hungry people here. In fact, there's about 5,000. What are we going to do? We, we probably need to feed them. And Jesus says three things. He says, find out. How many of them are working? <laughs> then he says, find out how many are here legally. And then Jesus said, find out how many have been baptized. Not infant baptism, believer's baptism. And then he says, find out how many of them are queer. And then he says, once you sort that out, find out how many, find out how many are living a sinful lifestyle. And the disciples are taking notes. And he says, after we figure out that, then we'll feed those people. <laughs> Y'all, I hope you don't believe me. And yet we, we make that the gospel, don't we? And yet we make that the gospel. No, what does Jesus say? He goes, find some food, quick. We got to feed these people. So they find five loaves and two fishes, and Jesus breaks it. And he gives thanks for it. And he gives thanks for it, and then he starts passing it out, and I have to imagine, then this isn't in Scripture, but right? Take and eat. He's saying, take and eat, and all these people, thousands of people, take and eat, take and eat. And there was enough. In fact, there was left over, and everybody had enough, and everybody was full. And here's what Jesus knew. Jesus knew, Jesus knew there's something, there's something sacred about the table. What Jesus knew is there's something holy about a table, something holy about food, Right? How do we deal with food, right? Well, we want to invite somebody over and we want to get to know them better. What do we do? We invite them, well, we used to. We used to invite them over for dinner, right? That's, and I think that's part of the issue with the pandemic is we don't get this sacred ritual of food together much, you know, in, in the same ways. 
If you want to strengthen a familial bond, what do we do? We invite people over to eat. When there's a party, we put out the hors d'oeuvres. And then on the flip side, unfortunately for humanity, there are times when people no longer eat at our table. Right? I remember uh, somebody came to our house and they said to us, um, hey, we're not going to go to Forefront anymore, and we had food out and they didn't eat it. Right? It's kind of like a symbol. Like Food is this symbol that says you are now included in what Jesus is doing with this miracle. Is, is this, and I love this quote. I'm going to read it for you if I can find it. Um, it's, a, it's a quote by a pastor named Jeff Nelson. He says, what Jesus is doing is implicitly declaring that when he gives people food, he's saying, I'm doing this because you are lovable. You are worthy of love, and so I prepared this for you. And that's what we're doing with food. We're saying, I'm doing this because I love you. You're lovable. You're worthy, so I do this for you. Now, here's what's going on with this. No longer is there a separation between the sacred and the common. Now what we're finding out is the common. Every seat at the table is a holy seat. And there is absolutely no one, and I mean absolutely no one, excluded from that holy seat at the table. Because Jesus did not go around and say, what are you? How do you identify? Do you live here? Do you believe this? No, Jesus said these people are hungry and they all have a seat at the table. There's something beautiful about the, 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 the lack of duality, right? Where it says, like, no more is this it is an exclusive thing. When God gets God's way in God's kingdom, everybody gets enough. And everybody gets a seat at the table. Not only does everybody get a seat at the table, everybody gets a voice at the table. And not only does everybody get a voice at the table, everybody gets the opportunity to lead at the table. Because what God is doing with the table, with food, is God is saying, no, 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 there is no more sacred and holy. You, 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 you are all holy. I feel like Oprah. And you get a seat at the table. And you get a seat at the table. And you get a seat at the table. Because this is what I want when I, want, when I get what I want in God's kingdom. That's it right there. And then Jesus, Jesus doubles down on it. And it's Passover again, probably the next year. And Jesus is eating with his disciples. His disciples were a hot mess. You want to talk about a group who probably shouldn't have been fed. No, that's not true. But they were a hot mess. That part is true. And Jesus says, hey, we're going to break bread at this table. And this table shows you that you, all of you, there were jihadists there. There were like really, really strict, uh, strict like observant Jews that were there. there. There were people who were fishermen who, you know, you got to imagine, right? And he says, hey, you have a seat at this table. You are holy. You are sacred. And when I get what I want, we break bread together. And so then Jesus starts to use this language. He breaks the bread. He says, this is, this is my body broken for you. And this is my blood shed for you. Now, why is he doing this? Because we know God already says through Isaiah that God doesn't need blood sacrifice. What Jesus is doing is Jesus is speaking the language of sacrifice. He's speaking a language that they'll understand. He'll say, hey, you know how you thought that you couldn't go into that holy place and we had to break a body and we had to spill blood? It's happening right here at the table. My body's broken. My blood is spilled so that you know that this is not exclusive. This is the most inclusive, most life-giving, most holy thing, and you are all a part of it. You are all saved by it. You are all filled because of it. Even you, Judas, who's going to, to betray me, even you, Peter, who's going to deny me, you still have this seed in this place. My body broken for you. My blood shed for you. And Jesus dies. He's resurrected, ascends to heaven, and what do his followers do? They're like, what should we do? How do we live out? What, how do we live out God's kingdom? How do we do it through Jesus? How, how and somebody goes, I got an idea. Let's eat. Let's eat. And then let's just invite everybody to eat. 
So all of a sudden, like, Gentiles get invited. Gentiles, you weren't even supposed to talk with Gentiles. Remember last, last week I was talking about Cornelius? Especially Cornelius, right? And, and, and they come to the table. They're at the table. And, and then other people come to the table. We know eunuchs are at the table, right? i got to imagine how many different people, how many outcasts, how many people that were told that they weren't allowed to be in holy spaces are now sitting around this really holy table and everybody has enough. And what everybody is saying together at this table is they're saying this word, Eucharistia. You know what Eucharistia means? Simple. It means to give thanks. It means we're thankful. We're thankful that we all get enough. We're thankful that we all have a seat. We are thankful that God doesn't need blood. We are thankful that this is not exclusive. We are thankful that in God's kingdom, all of us here are holy and beautiful images of our most high God. That is what we are thankful of. That is Eucharistia. And church, church, when we do communion... That's what we're doing. We're doing Eucharistia. And here's the beauty of Eucharistia. This communion is just a once a week remembrance, celebration, or whatever. See, when I was a kid and I was eating the big cracker and I was laughing, yeah, it was, it's more like that. It's more like that. It's a celebration that there's never a person excluded from the kingdom of heaven. And there's never a person who needs to worry about being on the outside. And there's never a person who needs to worry about being a scapegoat because it's all here and it's all for you. And life in full means that each of you know that you're holy and you get to remember that you're holy by coming to this table. That's what you get to do. Now, this table is just one part of it because there's holy acts of Eucharistia that we're doing all the time. In fact... We bless the ballot. And y'all, did we bless the ballot or did we bless the ballot? And here's the thing with that. When our church decided that we were going to organize around certain policies, we said we're going to organize around policies that are going to bring everyone to the table. The policies that we organize around should not leave anybody outside. The policies that we organize around should make sure that everybody has a seat and everybody has a voice and everybody has an opportunity to lead. And the policies that we organize around means that we make sure that every single person knows they're holy and included full stop. And what we found out yesterday was that the majority of the country believes that too. And so we can take a second to breathe <laughs> And we could take a second knowing that communion and Eucharistia is being played out right now. There is thankfulness. And I'm so proud of this church for the fact that we have lived out Holy Communion in the way that we've blessed the ballot. But here's what else I know. I know that there were still millions upon millions of people that said, no, I'm going to vote for policies that are exclusive, dividing, hateful, vitriolic. I'm going to vote for those policies. And so what does it mean? It means that I believe our calling as a church, if we are going to usher in the next 500 years, if we're going to bring the kingdom of heaven, then our calling as a church is to continue to work for Eucharistia to make sure everybody has a place at the table regardless of who you are or where you stand or what you believe and keep going down that list. It is all holy. That is our job. That is our goal. And so let us celebrate and let us rest and then let us usher in the next 500 years and answer God's calling to make this table a whole lot bigger. Y'all down? Y'all down? Let's do it. Let us do it. Oh. And so in the name of Jesus Christ, in the name of Eucharistia, in the name of thankfulness, in the name that we've never been separated from God, I'm going to ask us to simply remind people that they're included at the table. And then what I want you to remind people of 
is that not only are they included, but they have a voice at the table. Who doesn't have a voice that, that needs the voice? I saw that play out a few different times this week. Oh, and it's hard work, and it's good work. And then not only do you have a voice at the table, but can you lead at the table? Who's not leading? Who, who do we need to elevate into leadership position who has not had that leadership position? Kamala Harris, anybody? And as a quick aside, I'm going to say this, but I'm going to get emotional. You know, my girls are Indian. So, mmm, mmm. They have a seat at the table. Who else doesn't have a seat at the table? Who doesn't have a seat at the table? Because when we're talking about communion, there's no longer the separation of holy and common. All of it. All of it is holy. In February... Right before this whole pandemic went down, we had a packed out church. And for those of y'all who don't know, we used, to, we used to have people stand here, and they would stand here with a cup, and they would stand here with the communion cracker, and, and people would line up, and there'd be music playing, and people would line up. And then uh, we would say, body of Christ broken for you, blood of Christ shed for you. And they'd take a piece of communion, and they'd dip it into the cup. And I remember I was standing up here, and I was giving it. And I was giving communion, and, and somebody came up, and it was somebody who has been at our church since week two. And it's a woman who I love immensely, and who has become such an incredible friend who just fights against the patriarchy, and is like, I will only go to this church if it's an egalitarian church. This is 2012. And I was like, we're going to be that church, and she's still here. Actually, she's in the lobby right now. And I said, body of Christ broken for you, blood of Christ shed for you. And I thought about that even 50 years ago, that wouldn't have been the case. The next person came up, body of Christ, blood of Christ. Next person came up, and they identify as queer. And a few weeks previous, they had said, I'm not comfortable taking communion because I wasn't allowed to take it at my old church. But I, and so I don't know if I could take it here. I said, you're more than welcome to take it here. And I'm sitting up there, and they come up in tears. Body of Christ, blood of Christ. Next person comes up, Caribbean mom and her teenage daughter, right? And I, I know them, and I smile at them, and they smile back at me. And so, I'm a straight, white, cis dude. And people call me, I got called bro this week. Am I a bro? Am I a bro? Oh, I didn't know I was a bro. But, but anyway, I, you know, here's this thing, right? Where this beautiful, you know, this Caribbean mother and daughter and me, this white, cis bro, like, you know, uncommon kinship. And I said, blood of Christ body of Christ, and they smiled, and I smiled back, and I said, this, this is our community. Trans person comes up, and I just, I lost it. <laughs> body of Christ broken for you, blood of Christ shed for you. This is our church. This is what we do. This is why we do it. So that everybody has a seat at the table. So that everybody knows they are loved, and they are holy. And so, yo, let's keep fighting for that. Let's keep working for that. Let's usher in the next 500 years and make sure that everybody has that seat and that everybody has that voice because it's a miracle and we all get to play a part. So I'm going to ask us to take communion right now. I'm sorry I'm getting emotional. And I want you to take communion with me. So quick run, get whatever you need to get. And this is what Jesus says. He says, you are loved. And because you are loved, 
because you are saved, because you are holy, body of Christ broken for you. Let's take it and eat it, the gifts of God for the people of God. And then Jesus says, this is my blood shed for you. Take it and drink it because you are holy. Because there's no longer the sacred in common. It's all holy. You are loved. You are saved. Every one of you. And then we get to proclaim this mystery that for us, each and every one of us, all included, all included, Christ died for each and every one of us. Christ rose for each and every one of us. The kingdom of heaven is coming again, and we get to be a part of it. And to that I say, amen. Thank you, God, for the gift of the table. Thank you for the gift of communion. Thank you for your body. Thank you for your blood. Thank you for seeing each and every one of us as holy. Thanks for listening to the Forefront Sermon Podcast. To learn more about Forefront and how we're ushering in the next 500 years of Christianity, visit ForefrontChurch.com.